It's a pleasure to be with you once again. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Our sermon text this evening is found in verse 28. So what I want to do is read from Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 17. So Romans chapter 8. Bear with me as I break in this new Bible of mine. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse... If I can find it here. Verse 17. Actually, verse 18, my apologies. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 18. I want you to pay special attention to verses 28, 29, and 30. And this is what God's word says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters, this is God's holy word, and we thank God for it. The Apostle Paul, as he was coming to the end of his life, as he was about to be killed for the sake of the gospel and for the advancement of the gospel, he wrote these words to Timothy, his son in the faith. He wrote saying, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. 
I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now the question I have, and I hope the question that you have, is this. How in the world is Paul able to write these words? On the brink of death, on the brink of shedding his own blood, he writes these awesome words of encouragement to the church. The answer to that is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It is found in the sovereign providence of God. God is at work. As the Apostle Paul is in prison, he's not alone. God is with him. God is at work. And Paul understands that even the shedding of his own blood will be for the advancement of the gospel and for the glory of God, for the good of God's children. He knows this. He believes this. And I ask you this evening, do you know this? Do you believe this? There are four truths that I want to bring out and bring to your attention from verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. Four truths, and the first truth is this. God is at work. God is at work. Here we have yet another proclamation from the word of God that God is at work in creation. The Christian is not a deist. The Christian is not one who believes God created the world and then leaves this world to natural forces. No, the Christian believes that God is at work. The Apostle Paul, he writes this in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, to those philosophers and those poets on Mars Hill. He says, for in him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, in him we live, we move, and we have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, in the ancient Near East, of course, the father cared for his offspring. The father made sure that his offspring, his children, would not only thrive and survive, but he would educate them. Particularly as as the sons would come of age, the son would, would come into the school of dad. And he would learn to do what dad does. The father took care of him. The father was intimately involved in the life and the welfare of his children. And we, of course, are the children of God. Now, it's important to note that what Paul is saying in Acts chapter 17, for example, is not quite what he's saying in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, there is a sense of a discrimination, if you will. It is for the Christian only, that Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 17, every human being, everyone who lives, lives because Christ wills it so. God is at work. Right now, God is ruling his creation, and he's mediating that rule through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who who is right now at the right hand of God. He's at work. 
But in Romans chapter 8, we see that God is at work, not just in the life of all people, but in particular, he's involved in the life of the Christian, and only the Christian. So if you're not a Christian this evening, understand, these blessings are for Christians and only Christians. And so you have to ask, how can I get these blessings? How can I make sure that God is at work in my life? The answer, faith. It is trust. It is hearing what God is presenting to you this evening through the preaching of his word. It is believing. It is seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. It is seeing his shed blood. It is seeing his resurrection. It is saying, yes, that's for me. That's for my sin. He was, he was crucified because I'm a sinner. He, as 1 Peter chapter 3, he, he died as a sacrifice. He died as my substitute. He died to bring me to God. I believe that. It is only through that kind of trust, only through that kind of faith, that these promises are for you. If you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus, then this, these are words of precious gold. These are words that we need not only for the past two years, but in all things of life, whether good or bad. God is at work in your life, Christian, in a particular way. God is not at work like a master chess player or the world's greatest juggler. God is not trying to keep all the balls in the air, as it were. God is at work as a sovereign God. God is the one who controls all things. God is the one who rules with complete sovereignty and perfection. Acts chapter 117, he is before all things, and all things hold together. God is maintaining his creation through the Son, Jesus the Christ. God is not like Henry Ford, the, the creator of mass production through automation. No, God is intimately involved in the life of the believer. He is intimately involved in ruling all creation. And particularly, in a, in a particular way, in a special way, as, as verses 29 and 30 say, in a, in a foreknowing way, in a foreloving way. In a predestining way, God is at work in your life. And he's at work in your life for the end result to make you look like Jesus, to bring you into conformity with the image of God. And he's doing it for the glory of God, that God would be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. Do you believe that today? Is that good news? Does that give you great joy? Oh, brothers and sisters, the natural order that we see around us, gravity, the movement of the stellar bodies, the principles and realities of mathematics, the changing of the seasons, these are all the result of the constant, proactive work of the God of providence. R.C. Sproul used to tell this story, I think he heard it from, from Jim Boyce. Concerning providence, he tells the story of a man walking, going for a hike, and he, 
he, he, he, he comes to this cliff, this precipice, and he falls down, and he reaches out with both hands, and he grabs this, this, this branch, as it were. It's his lifeline, and he yells out to the top, is there anybody out there who can help me? And he can't see anybody, but he hears a voice. He says, I'm here, and I can help you. Reach out your hand. And the man looks at this branch and he looks at his hands and he looks down below and he looks up and he cries out to that voice, is there anybody else up there who can help me? Now that's a bit of a funny way of putting it, but the reality is, isn't that your heart and mind sometimes? We plead with God to help us. We plead for the God of providence. And he gives us this lifeline and we say, that's going to hurt. That's going to that's cause real pain. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like it. God, is there anything else you can do? And the Apostle Paul says, God is at work in all things. In all things, God is working for your good. And for his glory. This providence of God includes the plans of man. A man's mind plans his way. But the, the Lord, he directs his steps. Proverbs 16, 9. Psalm 19, 21. Many are the plans of the mind of man. But it is, it's the purpose of the Lord that will be established. You and I have plans. We have a calendar. I'm like the rest of you. I have certain tasks that need to be done this coming week, and it's in my calendar, and I have a plan. And of course, the Lord's will, that will be established. Do you remember the story of Joseph and his 11 brothers? His brothers had a plan in their minds, and it was the plan to kill their brother. They hated him. They were jealous, and they wanted to murder Joseph. And then their, the, the mind, their, their, the plans in their minds changed again when they realized, oh, we can make a quick buck. We'll sell our brother. And we'll tell our father that he was killed, that he's dead. That's their plan. Their plan is to get rid of the problem. Joseph, we don't like him. Their plan is to kill him. Their plan is to do away with this one whom their father loves. Long story short, Joseph ends up being the second most powerful man in the world at that time. And Joseph spearheaded a movement revealed to him by God to save enough food and resources for a coming famine so that many lives would be spared. What does Joseph say to his brothers when they are reintroduced decades later? They realize this is Joseph. He's the one. We had this plan. We're going to kill him. We don't like him. And now he's the second most powerful man in the known world. He knows what we've done and we know what we've done. What is the response of Joseph to his brothers? This is what we read in Genesis 50 verse 20. Joseph, he says, you... You intended to harm me, but God, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. 
The God of providence was at work in the life of Joseph. And the God of providence is at work in your life and in mine. Now, Paul understands this. He understands that God is at work in all things. He understands that God is sovereign. He is the God of providence. And Paul says in particular here in verse 20 that God works in our lives, in the lives of the Christian. God is active, and in each thing that happens, whether good or bad, God is ensuring that all things are at work for a positive end for those whom he has called. A positive end. God is at work. That's the first thing. Christian, God is at work in your life now. The second truth is this. God's work is for his people's good. Now the question we need to ask here is this. What is the good that Paul is talking about? For most of us, good equals things like happiness, like wealth. It's about solid relationships, a solid career, healthy children. And, and look, these are all good things in and of themselves. But are they the best things for us? I remember when our daughter Temperance was in the hospital shortly after she was born for those six months and people would always ask, don't you wish that you were somewhere else? Don't you wish that this is over soon? And of course, there's the reality where, of course, of course, we, this is, we don't like this. It hurts. And yet, we need to remember, there's a fine line between wishing things were different and saying, God, I can do better. I can do better. God must have fallen asleep when our daughter was born. That's really what people are saying when they say, oh, don't you wish you could do something else? Don't you wish you know, God doesn't really want this to happen? You'd be surprised how many people who know better have said that very thing. The reality is God is at work. God is sovereign. God willed this for good. The question is, do we know what that good is? Our definition of good is not the definition that God uses all the time, is it? Paul tells us exactly what that good is in verse 29. We don't have uh, time this evening to look at that, but, but just quickly read verse 29. For those God, God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the good that Paul's talking about here. The good that, that is God's work is that we are molded, that we are changed, that we are transformed. That sanctification process would work, that we would look less like the first Adam and more like the last Adam. That's good. But how God does it is often through the tears of suffering. Suffering is good. Suffering is ordained by God. 
Well, God's good is that we look like Jesus. In other words, God is at work in the lives of all who believe in his son Jesus as Savior and Lord. And God is working all things together for one glorious end to make believers look like Jesus. How often have you said, I wish I looked more like Jesus. I wish I was more holy. And then something happens and you say, Lord, if you could just get this out of my way, I'll be more like Jesus. Meanwhile, God is saying, this is here for you so that you would look like Jesus. This suffering is here so that you can be molded, so that you can be trained by it, so that you can be disciplined by it as a son. Because I love you. And I'm treating you like a son. I'm treating you like a daughter. I am disciplining you. And no discipline feels good. God has chosen and God has predestined his children to that end. The writer to the Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 to 11. One I know you've heard very recently. He writes this, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Listen, in the past two years, the suffering and hardships that you have gone through is God treating you as his children. That's it. That's the reality. God is treating you as his child. And so we are to endure it as discipline. For what children, the author continues, are not disciplined by their father... If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. That we may look more like Jesus. That we be more dedicated to God. Verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Well, how about James? What does he say concerning this suffering that God sovereignly and providentially places in our lives for our good. Well, he says this in chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Do you want to be a a mature and complete Christian? Get ready for suffering. Now, Paul and the author of Hebrews and James are not saying that the tragedies and heartaches of life will guarantee a better set of circumstances. That's very important. It's not like God has only a certain amount of suffering for you and then, and then it's clear sailing. Right? Pick up a church history book. That's not true. Even better, pick up the Bible. That's not true. God is the God of providence and God is sovereign. He will do what he will do in your life. And he will always do what is best, what is good, what is to to be used in your life to mold you into Jesus, into the image of Jesus. 
No, the result of hardships is holiness. It's conformity to the image of Jesus. When we come to suffering, when we come to hardships, there's a reason, there's a result, and there's a reward. The reason is God wants you to look like his son. The result, you look more like his son. The reward, many crowns in heaven. That's the purpose of suffering. The difficulty in understanding and applying Romans 8.28 is that our good and God's good are not the same. We want happiness. We want fulfillment. We want peace. We want long life. Meanwhile, God is at work in us, through us, and by everything that happens to us, he is transforming us into the image of Jesus. We say, I want long life. And God says, I want you to have the life that looks like Jesus, my son. The Lord Jesus suffered as well, didn't he? That's what, again, the author of Hebrews says concerning Jesus. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, we read this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. When suffering comes to human beings, we want to do whatever it takes to avoid it. But here's Jesus. He doesn't avoid suffering. He denies his rights. He came to the earth as a suffering servant. Jesus, when suffering comes, trusts God. And Jesus learned this when he put on human flesh. See, Jesus, before the incarnation, did not suffer in that sense. He's perfect. He's perfect in his Trinitarian relationship with God. And then he puts on a human body, fully God and fully man. And as a faithful high priest and a sympathetic high priest, he lives and he dies. He suffers. Jesus suffers so that when you suffer, he can say, I know exactly what you're going through. And I have done it for you. Just as I have learned from my suffering, so too can you learn from your suffering. We tend to think, well, God doesn't know really what I'm going through because he's God. What a silly thing. God knows exactly what, he, what we're going through because God has put on a human body. And by the way, let me ask you, who's God at worst? The one who sins and fails and sins and fails and sins and fails? Or the one who has no sin and who comes into this world and has to suffer alongside sinners? as a perfect and holy and righteous God. No contest. The Lord Jesus Christ knows how to suffer, and he knows the purpose of suffering. And we ought to learn it too, as God's children. When suffering comes to human beings, yes, we want to get rid of it. I'm here to say, when suffering comes, take a minute. Take a beat. Go to the Lord. 
and plead with him, how can this be used to mold me? What is the sin in my life that you're pointing to that needs to be eradicated? Not just made little, but torn out. God uses suffering for our good. And Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. Jesus' first aim was not his own comfort, but it is the will of God. Why should it be any different for us? When Jesus put on human flesh, he learned obedience in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, the loss of liberty, his rights even unto death. And he did this for the sake of God's glory and for the good of his people. That's the second truth. God is at work in his people's life for their good. Is that good news to you? Third, third truth. God's work is in all things. God's work is in all things. Now this truth should strengthen our feeble legs. It should pump blood into our emaciated hearts. Because God works in all things. This means that there is nothing random and nothing meaningless that takes place on this mortal coil. God is never surprised. Think back to to 9-11 when those planes hit the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. God's jaw did not drop. God did not put his hands over his eyes saying, I am utterly shocked. Wow, that was an unexpected turn of events. No. God is the initiator of all these events. He does not merely respond God is not passive. He is active. When bad things happen, when evil happens, God is not playing defense. God is not the chess player. God is not saying, oh, I see these hijackers will do this thing, so, so here's night to, to wherever, and, and checkmate. No, no, that's not what's going on at all. Again, think of Joseph and his brothers. Now, this doesn't justify Joseph's brothers sin this does not mean that they have an excuse before God it was they who sinned not God now there are two truths that we need to have in our theological tool belt if we're going to understand this the first is that human beings are responsible creatures we're responsible God is sovereign but we're responsible and the second thing is God is sovereign. First, we're responsible creatures. Second, God is sovereign. We need to hold these two truths in tension. Okay? Consider John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ begins his his I am discourses. Right? He begins with the the bread of life discourse. And in John chapter 6, verse 28 to 29, we read this. Then they, that is... The people, the crowds around him, they asked him, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus answered, the works that God requires is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. That's the work of God. You're responsible. 
God says, this is the work. This is what God expects you to do. He sent me. Here's the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. God expects you to believe. That's your responsibility. Here's the other truth. John 6, 44, just a few verses later. The same discourse. We read in verse 44, no, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. I understand. This is the same discourse and John and Jesus have no problem with what they've just said. You are responsible. You must do the work of God. The work of God is to believe in me. But God is sovereign. God draws sinners to Christ. That's the reality. Those are two truths that we hold in tension. Hold those in your theological tool belt. In John chapter 6, you see these two truths plainly laid out for us, and there's no hint of any contradiction. Jesus, the perfect Son of Man, Son of God, he's not embarrassed by this. That's very important. This is Jesus talking. So, so no philosopher of this age can ever say, you know, Jesus, you're, you're committing a, a contradiction of terms, you know. No. So in light of these two truths, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, turn back to Romans chapter 8, 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. What Paul is saying is this. In the life of the believer, even the evil that we can imagine is meant by God for our good. Whether it's death, whether it's illness, whether it's your child in the NICU, whether it's the, the untimely death of a loved one, it doesn't matter. Persecution, strife, loss of liberty, all things God works for our good. We could have used more of this in the past two years, and quite frankly, I could have used more of this in my own personal life. God is at work in these things for my good and for the good of the church and for the glory of God. Well, that's the third truth. God is at work in all things. And we're responsible. But God is sovereign. The fourth and final truth is this. God's people are those whom God has called according to his purpose. God has called us according to his purpose. Uh, these truths that we've covered so far, as I've mentioned, they're not general truths. That is to say they're not for everyone. They're for Christians. And they're only for Christians. Romans 8, 28 to 29 applies only to one group of people, and that one group is described in two ways. First, God has called them. Now, we don't have time this evening to dive into effective calling. It's enough for us to understand that God has worked in their lives in a special way. God has drawn them. He's wooed them. This, this isn't the kind of language where where God is breaking arms and dragging people, kicking and screaming. No, this is, this is a lover wooing his loved one. That's what's going on. He's calling them sweetly, gently. 
This is the foreknowledge of God, the forelove of God. And the second description is that these are those who love God. Can you say that this evening? Can you say, I love God in the biblical sense? I love God. He is my God because he loved me. And he predestined me. And he justified me. And he glorified me. This is the God who is at work in my life. I love him because he first loved me. That's the description. They're called and they love God. He's not saying that they love God's lifestyle. They don't say, well, I love this little bit about God, but but that Old Testament stuff, I could do without. No, these are those who, from Genesis to Revelation, say, I love God. I love who he is. I love what he does. And I love him by virtue of the new birth. He has loved me with an everlasting love. Can you say that this evening? The Christian is one who loves God. He loves him in the person and work of Jesus Christ the Messiah. And we must never forget that we love God because he first loved us. This this love of God is what grounds us to these beautiful truths. And this love of God grounds us when things get difficult. If you only love things about God... When God brings difficult times to your life, you will not make it. Because you only like the nice things about God. You love that, that, that bit of love. You like that bit of forgiveness. You like that bit of, of eternal life. Sure, yeah, but, but, but the, the good, the suffering, the, the being conformed to the image of Jesus. Wasn't Jesus a little bit of a bigot sometimes? You won't make it. If, if your idea of Christianity is, I love bits and pieces of God. This is not talking about you. You do not love God. And you need to repent. Oh, you need to see who God really is in the personal work of Jesus Christ. You need to look to the cross. You need to look to the shed blood. And you need to see that's what love looks like. The love of God is not just a saving love, but it is a transforming love. You look more and more like Jesus the righteous one who obeys the Father, even to the point of going to the cross. The Apostle Paul understood all of these truths. When Paul was imprisoned in Rome, he wrote to the church in Philippi, around 60 to 62 AD. This is his last imprisonment. I understand, the Apostle Paul, at this point, he's not under house arrest. He's in prison. It looks like a sewer. Okay? Do you know what people do in sewers, even today? It's gross. That's where he was. He was an object of ridicule. He wasn't even worthy of pity by the Roman elite. That's where he is. And by God's grace, he's able to write a letter. He's he's able to get a message out to the church in Philippi. And he writes this in Philippians 1, verse 12. He says this. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
How does he do this? How does he write this letter? Romans 8, 28. For those who love God, for those who have been called by God, for Christians and only for Christians, in all things God is at work for your good. Now let me say this as we conclude our time. The rest of the world cannot say these things. They do not know and they do not believe these truths from sacred scripture. So Christian, stop clinging to the things of this world that are good, like the rest of the world does, and cling to the better and faithful truths that God has revealed to us in Romans 8, 28. When hardships come, when freedoms are eroded, when death comes, let Romans 8, 28 be on your lips and in your hearts. I pray that this is my death cry, and I pray that it is yours also. And I know that in all things God has worked for my good. Because I love God. And I was called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great truths in sacred scripture. We thank you that we have these great truths modeled for us in the person and work of Jesus the Christ. Your great son, the great King David's greater son, the one who fulfills all the people, events, and institutions, the one who fulfills all of the prophecies, the one who is the greatest, the best, the preeminent one, the supreme one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Oh, may he have preeminence. Oh, maybe, may he have the glory as we think about how we are molded into his image through him and by him, by the work of the Spirit. May he get all the glory. Lord, forgive us when we have taken our eyes off him. Forgive us when we have used your truth as a a bully pulpit, as a, as a kind of way to advance our own cause and our own idea of what is good. Lord, bring us back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bring us back to your sovereign grace. Father, we thank you that you are at work and you are at work for our good. And Lord, in light of these truths, let us really understand that we are more than conquerors. We thank you, we love you, and we praise your...